the export rates really are still quite low. The CPUC basically said, okay, we'll give you a five-year glide path, but we're gonna start you at an export rate that's basically 75, 80% below where you currently are at. But ultimately, what this does for the industry is it shifts California solar to effectively be a solar plus storage state. This is the Solar Disruption Theory. All right, welcome back to the second part of our Solar Disruption Theory episode with Philip Shen. In the last episode, we covered a lot of ground. We're all still wearing the same clothes. You're still perfectly and appropriately dressed. Thank you, Philip. Um, we made this a two-part episode because there's so much we wanted to get into with you and wanted to take advantage of, of your time while we have you. So thank you so much for coming. But before we get into anything, there are some disclosures that you guys need to review. If you're watching this, it'll show up on your screen. If you're listening to this, they're in the description below in the podcast episode. Uh, Philip Shen, got Brett Bushy, CEO of Freedom Forever. Philip, thanks again for, uh, for doing this. In the last episode, we covered a lot of the macro issues that are going on in the, in the global supply chain with the IRA, with PPAs versus loans and that dynamic of what's going to happen there. And we've seen this massive shift from loans to PPAs. Um, I'm excited to talk about some of the topics in this episode because we focus a lot on like the guys that are out selling in homes, selling solar and the people that are out installing solar on rooftops. That's, that's what we focus on a lot. And you spend a lot of your time, it seems like, looking at the macro events, the macro issues that affect the overall uh, state of the solar industry. So thank you for being here. And we wanna get into a couple topics. Number one being uh, NEM 3.0. This one is a timely issue. By the time this airs, it may have been passed. We don't know. Um, it's early December right now. What do you make of net metering 3.0, the California bill that looks to change the way solar looks in the state of California? Thanks, Chad. Um, let me give some context first uh, for NEM 3 and where we're where we came from. Uh, in December of 2021, we got the the first proposed decision from the CPUC. And um, there are three issues that I think the industry had with that, uh, that original proposal. And that was um, an expensive grid participation charge, which was $8 per kilowatt, with, which was for a typical seven kilowatt system, a $56 per month fee, which was untenable. Uh, the second uh, issue that the industry had was retroactivity um, and actually grandfathering was eliminated or reduced um, for uh, NEM1 and NEM2 customers. And uh, the third issue was that uh, the export rate was dropped substantially. And so uh, in the new proposed decision, uh, I think the first two issues were basically resolved. I think they might find a way to put another $25 per month charge in there or like some mo modest charge in there. Um, they might sneak that into some of the time of use rates. Uh, but the biggest complaint right now is that uh, the export rates really are still quite low. The, uh, the CPUC basically said, okay, we'll give you a five-year glide path, but we're going to start you at a, 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 you know, an export rate that's basically 75, 80% below where you currently are at. And so that's where if, if and when we get uh, the final decision, there might be 
a yet another compromise there. But ultimately, what this does for the industry is it shifts um, California solar to effectively be a solar plus storage state. I think the majority of the installations in the state will become um, with storage. And as a result, the cost of systems will go higher. And actually, from an accessibility standpoint, um, it makes uh, solar much more expensive and less affordable to certain folks. So that in a nutshell is kind of what I see ahead. So you're saying that the two things, grandfathering, which would be like if I signed up for solar under NEM 1.0 or 2.0, I could still take advantage of those benefits, get the same rates that I get um, in this 3.0 that's largely going to stay somewhat the same now, at least the build that they're currently looking at. I think uh, the idea was under NEM 3, um, you know, or actually under NEM 1 and 2, you would get 20 years, right, of those uh, NEM 1 and 2 financial benefits. Yeah. Uh, and um, under the original NEM 3 proposal, I think they reduced that to 15 years. Okay. And so that uh, would hurt people's pocketbooks. Got it. And also, if you transferred your solar system, uh, and you, and I think you sold your, if you sold your house, then the new person, uh, the new homeowner, I think, would actually be subjected immediately to NEM three reimburse like export yeah. rates, as opposed to being able to maintain the NEM two export rates. I can see how that would be problematic. So that got somewhat fixed, at least based on what we're seeing, and then also grid participation. So. This fifty six dollar I, I saw we saw this in Arizona mm-hmm. right back in twenty fifteen or sixteen, I believe. Um, something similar there where there's this added fee or charge that essentially negates a lot of the savings. Right. And there's still maybe you're saying maybe a twenty five dollar charge. Mm-hmm. So but- I think what might happen uh, is so so they did get rid of the grid participation charge, I think eight dollars per kilowatt um, uh, per month. Uh, and so that's gone. But uh, they're forcing everybody to be on a time of use rate. And I think the time of use rates will be subject to a 20 to $25 per month fixed fee. And so this time of use rate may have non-solar customers. Uh, so others may yeah. be also exposed to that. Yep. But all the solar customers would be required to be under a certain time of use rate. And we currently have that already for, I think, under NEM2. And two out of the three utilities, I believe, charge a daily fee, something like $0.37 cents, uh, per day. And so you add that up, and it's about 20-ish bucks or something. And another one has, I think, $0.27 cents a day. And so the point is, I think they're memorializing that fee by converting it from a per-day fee to a, just a per-month fee. And uh, they might do it in all three um, IOUs, not just uh, uh, two out of the three. Yeah. So in any negotiation, when you win two out of the three points, that's usually a win. But what people need to understand is that 90% of the problem is in the export rate. All right. Is today we have net metering, which is basically at the retail rate. Not incredible, it's just at the retail rate. It's what the utilities charge us as consumers, but yet they don't want to have to pay out that, which is very, very ironic. Uh, but that's what you are dealing with when you're dealing with a you know, regulated monopoly. But ultimately, now we have an export rate that is so low, 
that is going to crush the savings proposition here in the state of California. And what is so upsetting to me is that we're not talking about the state of Georgia or the state of Montana or South Dakota. We're talking about California. California was the state that was leading the fight on climate change, which goes back to Governor Jerry Brown, who was the champion of climate change. And people also don't realize is that California is a top 10 world economy. It's massive. It's almost more than every other country that's out there. I'm not talking about the United States of America. And here we are trying to destroy the economics of solar. And it's mind boggling that this is taking place today. And a lot of people like, you know, trying to understand why it's happening. There's two theories. Is that, do the utilities have Governor Newsom in this pocket? Or is it, do they just don't understand? This is really complex stuff. And that's why we need somebody with a master's from Stanford to explain it to us. Uh, and it might be a combination of those two. Uh, so some of the things I hear are that he didn't necessarily staff up his climate change staff or his department, you know, after taking office. And so his people may not understand all the full nuance, uh, all the nuance of the situation. And um, and then also uh, it might just be the case that, you know, with all the wildfires and the challenges there that they've had to really work closely with the utilities and the utilities are, you know, have a, have his ear and, and his staff's ear. And so the short answer is, I don't really know exactly uh, why they're doing this, but California, as you say, is a top 10 economy in the world. I think it might be top six um, or the sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, at one point is uh, the fifth largest. Um, and other, it serves as a, uh, a leader for the rest of the country and the world. And, you know, I was uh, told that um, recently that I think uh, somewhere in Canada, maybe Nova Scotia, uh, they, their utility commission copied this uh, $8 per kilowatt per month thing. Uh, and ultimately their community and their, uh, they rejected this and they didn't get it passed. Uh, and so, and, and ironically, at the same time when Newsom CPUC uh, passed, uh, put this initial this uh, proposed decision out in um, in December of 2021. Ron DeSantis, uh, a Republican uh, governor in Florida, he vetoed this uh, um, a bill that would have gutted net metering in Florida. And so uh, it's just ironic because typically California is the leader in solar. And in this case, let's come back to kind of where we stand now. And that is, uh, we likely will see across the three IOUs, a 75 to 85% cut immediately in the export rate. And then you get this, you know, kind of faux glide path uh, over the subsequent five years, you glide from, you know, a really low level to uh, an even lower level uh, in five years, but it's effectively useless because you're starting at such a low point. And so, you know, we're scheduled or, or slated to get the final decision on this uh, on December 15th, which is in 10 days, I believe. Um, and so what I'm looking for and what I think the industry is hoping for is um, 
some moderation on that cut, but I don't think the industry is expecting too much. Like I think uh, we might maybe maybe instead of a, an eighty percent drop, we get uh, a 75 percent drop. But the reality is, you get such a big drop. Coming back to your point, it guts the savings right away, and so solar uh, in the state of California will become less economic for um, those who can't afford such you know, batteries. And uh, as a result, we're likely going to see a drop in solar only demand in the state. And we'll see the attachment rates of batteries go up substantially. If you want, I'll turn it back to you, Chad and Brett. If you want me to quantify that for you, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. And when that happens, explain the difference of the value proposition with solar plus storage. Because there is obviously advantages of having storage, but it's very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. So, so how would the economics work in net metering 3.0, assuming it doesn't change, would you have to add one battery, two batteries, three batteries? Would you go off grid? A lot of people think like everybody's gonna go off grid because of this. So ultimately you have the ability to export at you know some really low number between five and eight cents a kilowatt hour. And so typically the way solar has been sold and you guys, uh, this is your business and you, kn- you know it better than I do, but you know, people were selling uh, solar with a savings proposition. You know, you can go solar uh, and immediately save 15, 20% versus your current bill. That's a very easy uh, proposition. With the current um, proposed decision, if it becomes final, uh, then you're not going to have those savings anymore. As a result, you're going to have to convince people that resilience is important. It's going to be more of a value sale as opposed to uh, uh, ec- economic savings. Um, monthly savings um, sale. And in some places, I'm guessing you'll be able to have uh, solar plus storage and maybe maybe break even, maybe be, you know, five to 10 or 15%, you know, some mo- more modest savings level relative to your uh, incumbent utility rate, which is probably close in California to you know, 30 to 40 cents. I think San Diego Gas and Electric, it's roughly a 40 cent per kilowatt hour. And PG&E and SE is closer to 30 cents kilowatt hour. So ultimately, there's less of a saving sale um, or uh, and it's more of a uh, re- you have to sell more in value and resiliency and, and, and so forth. And clearly, Brett, if you if you want to jump in with some additional perspectives, by all means. Yeah, I mean, I'm very concerned and I do agree. I think the battery attachment rate is going to need to be 90 percent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just solar in, in fact, we keep saying, who is going to install in net metering 3.0 solar without storage? Mm-hmm. Like, let's look at the other way. Like, it might be 99.9%. Like, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Yeah. So you would just get crushed um, from a financial perspective. And uh, it just does make the economics harder. But I do think you can create some savings. And we're going to be creative. And you have to kind of, like, reinvent how you do things in the state of California, but I want everybody to remember what happened in Hawaii, all right, in, I think it was 15 or 16 when that happened, what did you see with solar demand? And compare net metering 3.0 to what happened there. I think solar dropped substantially, solar sales and installations, but uh, storage attachment rates basically went to 100%. And uh, I think that's probably the path uh, the state is on if we um, see this decision become final. And from a hopeful perspective, and now it's a a flourishing market, 
with Solar Plus storage in Hawaii. A lot of people remember like it fell off a cliff and I mean, the the year after that was difficult, but you know, I do think with the cost of power being so high that it's not going to kill it in the state of California if you're listening or you're selling in California. It's just gonna make the value proposition very different. Let me ask you a question, Brett. Um, what kind of savings do you think a solar plus storage system could have in SoCal uh, relative to the high incumbent utility rates? Could you see 10% or even more? Or do you think it's closer to 5% savings or maybe break even? I think it can be as high as 10% in SDG&E, but I do not believe in SCE. So it just depends or PG&E. So I think a bill swap is going to become the norm. But, you know, there's still a lot of things that are out there. And until we, you know, understand the final decision, it's going to be difficult to really ascertain that. But I think really people need to reset their expectations in the state of California, because this is going to be dramatic and it is also going to add battery. And I hope hopefully a lot of people leave the grid. What people do not understand, the utilities do not understand, is that if they push the pendulum too far to one side, everyone is just going to leave them. And um, that's, you know, where we're going with decisions like this. But it's just you know, Governor Newsom needs to stand up and say, I made a mistake and needs to change it. And, you know, we'll see what happens with net metering 3.0. You might see a net metering 4.0 within months of net metering 3.0. Like, I think it's going to be shocking for a lot of people. Uh, So you mentioned um, uh, that in PG&E and parts of SE, they may not see savings with solar plus storage. And then with uh, coming back to our prior webinar, um, the loan versus lease PPA debate, that's yet more fuel for more lease and PPA because uh, those um, that ITC that the lease and PPA get access to has the ability to use domestic content and they can use the Tesla Powerwall battery and and then they may be able to create some savings as well um, and versus a typical loan that may not be able to have savings. Yeah, and you you could also see some, I think, cheaper batteries. I think there is going to be some very creative things done on the PPA side um, with batteries is, is you need to figure out how to get your battery costs down. And I think there's some cool stuff. And you guys know about Sunrun's investment into their new battery company. Um, that could play a part. Um, but again, significant advantage even more than we talked about in the other, you know, they'll have more of an advantage in California than they will in the other 49 states. But the reason that this is such a big concern for like, for a guy like me and and sales guys is, you know, we're in, Freedom Forever is in 30 states. And of the 30 states that we're in, California by far has the highest utility pricing. So, and as you mentioned earlier, as California goes, so go a lot of other states from policy and California is the leader with regard to solar, climate change, all that type of legislation. And so, you know, if we're if we're talking about can we find savings in a market that is the most expensive state of all the solar states in the U.S. outside of like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, 
we're squabbling over can we save 5% or maybe at the high end 10% in this market. If other states start to adopt this and the trend goes, I mean, there, there are no savings. We're, we're seeing in a lot of states right now without any of these other issues, just because of interest rates, um, dealer fees going up, purchase only markets, there are no savings right now without drastic measures being taken as it is. And so it just seems like the, 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 the sales pitch to go solar has been, hey, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer, let me see how much money we can save you. Now the new sales pitch is, you know, we call it the zombie apocalypse pitch, right? It's like, hey, we can put panels on your roof and you need a battery. I don't think we can save you any money, but you will have power in the event of, you know, the worst case scenario. And that to me is what is the most concerning because if this is the beginning of more of what's to come, then I um, am extremely concerned for the for the future of solar from a customer cost saving standpoint, which was I thought, you know, one of the biggest benefits of going solar. Am I wrong? Yeah. So first of all, I know there's this opinion out there. I know you've talked about it a little bit, so I don't mean to disagree with you, but the state of California, people are not running to follow the state of California, the other 49 states. <laughs> not right? right now, yeah. Right? In fact, um, ask all your friends in Utah or Florida or yeah. Texas. They right. th- they want to run as far away as California as possible. So I'm not convinced that everybody is going to follow California. You also have California that does have, let's talk about the real issues that's been created with rooftop solar. We have almost 12% of the households in California have solar on it. We are producing too much energy in the day and not enough at night. So this to me is just the beginning. Like, like they're going to have to readjust it again. Um, I think rate arbitrage is going to come at some point, which will make really batteries more valuable, but that really fixes the problem. If you really want to fix the problem and you're not a selfish like monopoly, you're trying to figure out how to regulate the amount of kilowatt hours that come onto the grid, all right? And how you do that, I'm an economics guy, like I'm private equity. You pay more for the power that comes onto the grid at night and much less in the day. It's really simple. And you also have to have faith that we are going to figure this out. This is a problem. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're black, you're white. This is the existential problem problem that we face. It doesn't matter whether you live in India or you live in China or you live in the United States of America. This is a massive problem. And you have to have faith that we are going to get together and we are going to solve this problem. And how you solve this problem is renewable energy. And so so that is the one overarching theme. Like a lot of people have these doomsday scenarios, have faith in humanity. All right, like we can do it and we will figure out a way. And so don't get so lost that, hey, this will create a domino and then these other 50 dominoes will fall. Could it happen? Absolutely. Will it happen? I don't believe so because I believe in humanity. I believe we are going to solve this problem. Even though we're very late in recognizing the problem of climate change, people are starting to talk about it. I remember in 2015 when I got into this, I'm embarrassed to say, until I watch Inconvenient Truth, 
like I was ignorant about it. I was agnostic. I just didn't think about it. I don't think I was just selfish. It just it just wasn't on my radar. Yeah. Now all of our kids talk about it. Like your kids are going to grow up and have more of an understanding around climate change than even my kids did because they're 10 years younger. Yeah. That is amazing. That is what's going to solve this problem is the collective effort and have faith that we are going to figure it out and we are not going to be controlled by a few, a bunch of, you know, just selfish monopolies. All right. Like that's why the Sherman Antitrust Act existed. We are not going to allow it to happen. I don't care how much money gets paid to a governor. We will solve that. And I do believe that. And, um, and you just have to have faith sometimes. So what I just heard is that you do not believe in zombies. No. Okay. Right? Uh, but the end of the world could happen. And so, <laughs> you know, the other thing we need to start installing is those turrets for the guns on top of the sea, you know, so when the zombies come, yep, I'm just kidding. Yep. All right. So, um, all right. So let's say you're right. And, and we've got this positive outlook and we think we can maybe fix it or maybe some of the other sta states where the tight um, – the margin between the cost of solar and the cost of the utility, it, it, it doesn't flip flop and doesn't go upside down. There's still this massive tightening of the this margin. And there's a lot of sales reps out there. They're the ones who are setting the price with the customer. They're the ones in the home. They're explaining how solar works and they are walking them through the whole process. And at the end of the presentation, they are the ones who tell the customer how much it's going to cost them to go solar. And one of the things that I know you guys have both talked about is with that level of freedom and flexibility that the sales reps have, combined with maybe the lack of understanding that a customer has in terms of what the prices should be, and you guys have talked about self-regulation. And, you know, I, I think that is something that we definitely need to discuss because things like net metering 3.0 and some of these other political things, I can't really control that. But one thing that I think people can control is how much they're charging to customers for solar. Why are customers, in some cases, paying a fair price and they're able to save money and it works great? And in other cases, they're being taken advantage of. Great question, Chad. Um, ultimately, as you mentioned, I think as an industry, we have to self-regulate and uh, to root out that behavior because uh, ethics and, and uh, sales you know, practices have to be more scrupulous. And we've seen some big names fall recently. Uh, we saw Power Home, you know, also known as Pink Energy, you know, file for bankruptcy. And you know, there's a lot of negative press around what they did and the people that they took advantage of. And you know, those um, companies are enabled by the money that they have access to. And so that money ultimately uh, likely needs to uh, find a way to, to be so free flowing and to be to establish some in, uh, some um, standards to uh, ultimately root out some of the behavior that you're talking about, Chad. Um, and if the industry doesn't self-regulate, the government will do it. Uh, is ultimately ultimately my my sense. 
I don't have any insight into that outside of my personal um, and professional experience um, that when you have, um, you know, other states, I think the state of Minnesota going after um, a number of other uh, Utah um, installers. And I think Goodleap and Sunlight were named in that lawsuit. Uh, you know, the, the more of a course you start to get, um, then at some point, uh, the federal government may haul uh, executives into, you know, the halls of Congress and, and ask them to answer questions as to why these things are happening. And when you get to that point, well, it's a little bit too late. You, know, you kind of want to, as an industry, anticipate these problems and self-regulate uh, and be able to bring a self-imposed uh, solution to the government um, uh, before one is forced onto the industry. Yes, and from a sales perspective, this is one thing that comes up a lot, is that there are items that should be paired with solar, all right, that are ITC eligible, and there's other ones that are not. And too many times in this industry, we see air conditioning, LED lights, um, a myriad of different things, people trying to package those into a solar loan, all right, and then telling the customer that they need to take the entire solar loan and get the full ITC tax credit. I wanna make sure that everybody understands, all right? The installation company that does that is not doing anything wrong. The salesperson is causing the customer and inducing them into committing ITC tax fraud. It needs to stop. It is done so much in our industry. I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. I love when somebody says, hey, if I can't sell air conditioning, it, you know, with you guys, then I don't want to come. And we're like, good riddance. We don't want you. So, right. and yep. it doesn't mean the air conditioning is bad. It doesn't even mean that it can be paired. You can get a loan for the air conditioning. There's a lot of great home improvement loans that Mosaic and Goodleap have are incredible, but they need to be separate. All right. And you cannot tell the customer, all right, to say, roll this into the ITC tax credit. All right, and you get a 30% reduction. It's not eligible. It's wrong. And it is going to create a massive problem. And the first thing is we need to stand up and say, as an industry, we're doing it and it needs to stop. All right. And I have a great way to stop it. It's really simple. All Let's right. I need four people to get in a room and put caps in every single market of what you can sell from a gross price per watt. Every bad thing happens can be determined by how high you sell. That covers everything. If yeah. you're doing tear shaving, you're adding all these things in, you're going to sell higher. All right. Roofing. All right. If you want to have exceptions, have exceptions. We monitor what every rep and what every dealer does at Freedom, how high they sell. And if they consistently sell too high, we are going to dig into those projects and we are going to get them out of our system. It's really easy. Everybody says, oh, you can't do it. But collectively, we need the four leaders in the finance industry to say enough is enough and they can stop it by just putting gross price per watt caps. And it needs to be specific for each state because the cap in Idaho is going to be a lot different than California that it's going to be in Florida. And that will eliminate 90% of all the negativity. All right, 
pink energy should have never happened. If these caps existed today, they would have never happened. They did this for three years. Everybody knew how high they were selling. And we allowed it as an industry. And the finance companies allowed it by allowing them to sell. They can see, oh my gosh, this company is selling at a dollar a watt higher than everybody else in that state. We should look into that company. I don't know the numbers, but we know everybody talked about what Pink Energy and Power Home done, but yet we enabled them as an industry and we have to stop it. So you're you're saying that, I mean, we yeah, we, we do control our price per watt very closely. And we have our our 80-20 model where, you know, we do this rev share and it, it basically disincentivizes sales reps um, from even selling with freedom because it, it penalizes them the higher that they sell. Conversely, it, it benefits them the lower they sell. Um, but you're proposing that the four larger finance companies, the four largest finance companies get together and create caps on their price per watt and don't allow sales reps to sell higher. If they do, they need to have certain things to prove that it was valid. That seems like it would cover a decent percentage of the overall. Um, I mean, you can't you can't affect cash customers, but it's not like you could overcharge a cash customer anyway. So it seems like that would have a positive impact on a lot of the solar that gets sold. Philip, do you agree with that idea? Do you think, um, is there a better idea? What's, what's the best way to attack this? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, we need these leaders to get together and self-regulate uh, and they can control the vast majority of the resi solar industry that, as Brett said, need to get into a room and figure it out and you can really influence the industry in a good way. And I think the timing of this is uh, maybe starting to become a little bit more urgent. You know, these things have a way of becoming more uh, conspicuous when you go into a recession, when hard times start to Mm -hmm. hit more homes and pocketbooks and we are going into a recession. And uh, if a course of voices and homeowners and people uh, start to develop across the country, then, you know, that that is you know, a recipe for uh, losing control. Um, and so if, if the industry wants to be able to still influence and control uh, the outcome of the situation and their own des- its own destiny, then I think uh, they should get together, meaning the, the heads of these companies and figure it out. And, and regulation is coming, whether we want it or not. Mm-hmm. And it's better to self-regulate. And it's also the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to do it here at Freedom. But the one thing on the installation side, it's much more fragmented. All right. And quite frankly, I don't think I'm going to get the top 15 installers to all agree to do this. But we are doing it. And it is the right thing to do. And if you don't like it, get the F out of here. We don't want you at Freedom. All right. And that's okay. And you have to be disciplined enough to say no to the volume. And that's what a lot of people won't do as they get into a situation that they need the volume and then they make exceptions. And that's why I believe, you know, the finance industry is a much smaller group. You're talking about, you're right, six executives control about 90% of the solar financing, maybe more than that. So, um, but if one person is doing it and the other person is not, that could be a perceived advantage. I would say 
it's a disadvantage because long term it's going to hurt them with higher default rates and everything like that. They're, you're going to pay the piper at one point. All right, is everybody needs to agree on this and it will stop. It's something that we just we need to do and we need to clean up and it's just the right thing to do. Like we need to be proud mm-hmm. of like what we're doing. We shouldn't apologize for doing the right thing. And we have to be aggressive to clean it up and do things the right way. And we need to hold each other accountable. And that's why I'm calling out these people. I know all of them, respect them immensely. And uh, we've had several of them on this podcast and they can absolutely do that. And we can make the industry so much better, so much more bankable too. And we should never have another pink energy. It shouldn't happen. So is there going to be the normal fraud where people defraud and they call in and they say they're the wrong person? That still is going to happen. But something, a company, they were able to originate and install probably over a billion dollars worth of loans. Mm. All right. And those customers are not going to be happy. Not one of them. And that is a problem. And we all have the problem. It's now collectively become everyone's problem. Let's just make sure it doesn't happen again. Let's clean it up. Let's make us even more bankable. 100%. And ultimately, as you said, I'll echo again, it's doing the right thing. And I think it needs to happen. And and I think each one of those executives, uh, you know, I know most of them. And I think they would all agree that this is the right thing to do. It, But it takes the group to act together um, so that um, there's not an advantage um, that another one who's not involved can um, wield. That is uh, probably historically what's been part of the problem um, to prevent these guys from working more closely. Technically, I don't think they can work together, but if they create an industry, like a, an industry or association with the goal of making this kind of stuff happen, my sense is they should be able to do that. I agree. And, we're, and again, we're not, we're talking about things that benefit the customer. So we're not talking about antitrust price fixing that actually increases the price of the customer. What we're trying to do is regulate and make sure we're improving the customer experience and the customer value proposition. So um, there is a way to do this and we've got to figure out a way to do it. I know on our side, we, we talked about how we kind of control our caps and our prices. Um, we do, even if, even if we can't get the other large installers in a room to agree to this, we do hold this standard and we say no, we lose sales teams over this. And so I think it is possible, even if they can't get all of them in a room to come to some sort of agreement, it may only just take one or two of the larger ones to stand up and just say, we're going to be okay saying no to a certain amount of business if it's not the right type of business, right? And that could create I don't know, some sort of ripple effect, but we've seen it on our side. We've seen sales reps come in, they learn about our model, they learn how we kind of self-regulate and they leave and they say, this is not for me. And our response every single time is good riddance. Like you're not a good fit for our business. So just so you're aware, we, since June of this year, the dealer fees have gone up and they've eaten the entire sales margin. Mm -hmm. So sales reps make a lot, Mm -hmm. but interest rates have caused dealer fees to swallow up that entire amount. And so for 
a sales rep to make half of what they used to before interest rates went up, they still have to increase their price to the customer significantly. Now, on the other side, utility rates have also skyrocketed. And Brett, we've seen, what, an average of 20% in most states? In a lot of states, as high as 20%. Uh, I would say the national average is probably up about 12 to 14%, which is incredible which is just crazy because it's historically been like two, nine, three percent. Mm -hmm. yep. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm seeing states go from 12 cents to like 14 and a half cents in one year. And that's incredible, but it still is enough to not to offset the capital costs. And why we're again talking about the increased capital costs. Guys, it is temporary. I want to make sure everybody understands this, that like interest rates are not going to stay this high. Um, Again, I'm not Nostradamus, I'm not a soothsayer, I have no idea what is going to happen, but I'm pretty confident based on looking back to the history of the U.S. economy, we are not going to stay here. Um, and I'm cautiously optimistic they're going to see a lot of optimism even in Q1 and Q2. That doesn't mean rates will come down, but a lot of it is just knowing the certainty of what is going to happen and we've kind of peaked and it'll start coming down. And I think you're going to start seeing that, you know, in the next few quarters. And to me, it's just a temporary issue. That's where I want to make sure that I'm talking about California, I'm talking about today. Mm -hmm. All right. Like I think with batteries, you could get when capital costs become more normalized, you could maybe be back to 15, 20% with, you know, normal interest rates. And you could be there three or four quarters. Hey, Brett, quick question. Um, what do you think is the rate of increase of utility um, retail rates uh, in 2023 and 2024? Do you expect that 12% to sustain or do you think in what do you think it is in 23, for example? Yeah, I think it's going to be double digits again in 23. Mm -hmm. I think with just the energy crisis, it's just begun. Like costs are, yeah, I think we're going to see double digit in 23. And I think we could see, you know, High seven single. to nine percent in mm -hmm. 24 yeah. high single digits in 24 yeah and and so that's what i'm talking about the economics could really really improve because of that we've just never seen the cost of energy go up at this rate and they're real costs that are going up one thing i have learned without a doubt and i haven't been in solar as long as you but everything is temporary <laughs> like there is nothing that isn't right around the corner from changing. It just seems like uh, you're right. And so we talk about interest rates, we talk about dealer fees, we talk about regulation and policy. Um, the only thing that seems to that it's here to stay at least for the next 10 years is the tax credit, right? So it's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. And it's a good kind of segue into the final couple questions, Philip, is mm -hmm. what is your outlook on the solar industry as a whole, all the different aspects. I mean, you you look at this industry from such a different lens than what we do every single day. You see, I, I mean, the amount of data that you consume on supply chain and, and financing and the types of companies you meet with and interview. I mean, it's just fascinating what you put together in your regular reports. So what is your medium and long-term outlook on the solar industry? Uh, ultimately, for the medium and long term, you know, I see a substantial amount of growth. Uh, I see, you know, as Brett was just highlighting, you know, eventually prices should come back down and come back to earth. 
you know, it may like we might start to see it as we mentioned earlier in the prior episode, you know, maybe Q1, Q2, we could see a little bit of moderation of that module pricing. And ultimately the the point of the Fed to raise rates is to actually control inflation and the rate right. at which prices do increase and and solar historically has been on this trajectory of uh, lower costs over time. Uh, but ultimately with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, we have two different key aspects. You have a demand stimulus, right, with uh, the 30 percent and and at some, you know, and even the potential for a 70 percent ITC. Right. Uh, ultimately, you have that demand stimulus stimulus really pushing residential and solar in general through and growing over the coming years. Um, and uh, and then on the other side, with the manufacturing incentives, uh, you're going to have uh, a manufacturing renaissance or, or establishment of uh, a really strong uh, uh, base and source of modules that can feed that demand. And so it's it's exciting to see what might happen and what will happen in the coming decade. And I'm really looking forward to it. Brett has always used the term new oil. You seemed to agree mm-hmm. with that term before. I thought Brett invented it. He, he may have. Um, but, you know, with with this industry that we're in, what is the runway? A lot of times sales reps and, you know, I think sales reps and installers, it's like, you know, this is what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones out originating and installing the customers. There's the one doing the work. Uh, how long is the runway on the solar industry? I mean, we have 10 years with this 30% ITC, but at some point it becomes a self-driven industry where you don't need the economic, the, the, the subsidy. And, uh, you know, where the utilities are in this vicious cycle, as, you know, I've talked about many times in the past, but basically, you know, they're in a business of, you know, their numerator, which is the, their cost of delivering that power to the home is growing uh, every year. And that growth does not seem to be stopping, you know, with all the transmission and distribution upgrades that they have to make. The, the overall, all the grid upgrades. It's an aging been. infrastructure that needs to be improved at a much faster grade over the next decade than they have in the last three decades. Exactly. So you have the numerator accelerating, that cost total. And then in the denominator, the, the rate at which those people are leaving the system is accelerating. And so you have this vicious cycle for the utilities, which ultimately is not great for them. And who is the beneficiary on the other side? You have solar and the customers of solar. And so I think for the next decade, you see a tremendous amount of growth. Uh, the, the penetration rate of solar, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, is 12% in California. I mean, in a decade's time, do we get to 45%, 50% of the residents and, and homeowners in California with solar? I, I, I would, I think it'd be safe to say probably yes. And so we get to a point of at some point we, the, the rate of growth will slow, but there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, um, uh, until we get there. All right. So what question did I not ask you that I should have? You've asked a lot of questions. I have. Uh, so let's see. Um, oh, there's one around the UFLPA that you could probably ask okay. in terms of module availability. And is that situation d- continuing to deteriorate or improve? I do have a question around the UFLPA. What does UFLPA stand for? 
So uh, this was a law that was passed at the end of last year um, uh, called uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Yep. And so this act was passed uh, something like uh, 406 votes, yay, to three nay, something like that. Uh, I know there's like 435 members of Congress, um, but they were out that day, the rest of them. Yeah. Basically, uh, it is in earlier versions of the act were passed when Trump was president. And think about that, that last year Trump was in office. The Democrats and Republicans agreed on nothing, but right. they agreed on this. Mm. And so and not just like it wasn't just a small majority. It was a, you, you don't see votes like this often. Yeah. And so what's going on here? So UFLPA um, is a law that is uh, basically trying to prevent forced labor goods from China from coming into the U.S. Yes. And so in this region of China called Xinjiang, uh, it's a province in the northwestern part of China. Um, there's a large Muslim community and uh, uh, China has um, effectively um, used modern s slavery methods to um, force a lot of people into factories and re-educate them. Uh, and there are lots of papers out there that document uh, this stuff, uh, but uh, basically, in what, how is this relevant for solar? Um, earlier in the prior episode, we we're talking about the upstream value chain of solar, and it comes from quartzite and polysilicon. A tremendous amount of polysilicon is manufactured in that region alone in China. I want to say something like 50% of the mm. world's polysilicon comes from the Xinjiang region, which is uh, filled with and rich with coal. And so uh, there's cheap power um, and, uh, and a lot of the quartzite mining is there as well. And so uh, what the U.S. put in place was a law that requires companies to document that they don't have raw material from that region. And that became a, a problem for the sole industry uh, because uh, the documentation was not readily available. And to make matters worse, uh, when the U.S. passed this law and there was risk and, and uh, there was also another action that was taken, which was um, a withhold release order uh, against a company called Hoshan, which is also based in Xinjiang. Uh, so that was the industry calls it the Hoshan WRO. Um, and uh, when the, all, all that stuff was going was going down last year and this year, China put in again, to make matters worse, China put in a law that prevented companies based in China with complying with U.S. standards or regulations mm. on, on these matters. And so you have executives of Chinese companies producing solar product, wanting and hoping and wishing to serve the U.S., but they are in double jeopardy, legal jeopardy, right? On the one hand, if they ship to the U.S. and they don't provide this documentation, they're not going to be able to get their product through. On the other hand, if they do, they have person, you know, political and personal risk uh, in the country that they reside in. And so, the industry has been adapting to this for some time. Um, we broke the story on this back in October of 2020 uh, that this risk was in the solar supply chain. Mm. We uh, wrote about the first. Um, 
Hoshine WRO detention, which was Jinko back in August of 2021. And then the first UFLPA detention was also Jinko. We wrote that story in June of this year. So that's the backdrop. And this tip historically has impacted the utility scale segment a lot more. So in residential solar, it's just not as common. But Brett, you were talking about how, hey, Biden put this moratorium of this anti-CERC tariff for two years in place. I think it was in May. Why did prices not fall? One of the reasons why was because in June, we got the first detention of Jenko, and then a few weeks later, we got the detention of Longji. And yeah, and, and some- we know because we had, like, I remember, it's like my Pearl Harbor and solar is when I got the call and said all of our panels were seized. Mm-hmm. And I looked at how much inventory we had, and all of a sudden, like, that was our primary panel at the time. And ironically, we were using them because they were at the, you know, the top of the bankability charts. Um, Longi had a you know, a great reputation. We were dealing directly with them and uh, it really affected us disproportionately to other people. Like if you were selling Q-Cell and that was in your pipeline, it affected us worse than other companies that are out there. Mm-hmm. So we know it very, very well. So you had to dance, duck and dodge and and basically find a way to get panels for your installers and you made it happen. Uh, and Why? Well, well, you have an, your answer, but my answer as to why the residential segment hasn't been impacted as much is because the prices and the profitability is just much greater. And so whatever product that was compliant uh, basically found its way to this segment because of the profits uh, here. Right. I have a question that I try to ask people that I really respect in the industry is that you know, we have a business plan here at Freedom that we have been following diligently for almost eight years, right? And, uh, you know, we believe it's all about scalability. It's about process. We then turn the process into an intuitive software called Lightspeed. We think it's given us an advantage over everyone else. And that's why we become the, we believe we're the largest residential installer in the country. Um, And if not, um, we're growing at a faster rate. It's just a matter of days or weeks before we are number one. And our goal is to be 50% market share. We don't shy away from our objectives or goals. But what am I missing? You know, I know you've seen a lot in the industry. You've been around for literally like almost three times as long as I've been in the industry. What should I be looking out for? Why have there's so many headstones of installation companies in the solar graveyard. I mean, I just don't, I mean, I kind of do understand, but you know, what can I learn? What have you seen that I need to make sure that we as a company avoid? So I'll do my best to answer that question, Brett. Um, I've talked to a lot of executives over the years. Um, and the, the one thing I hear about installation companies is, you know, labor doesn't scale. And so uh, I think what happens is people try to scale labor and they uh, run into challenges. Um, I think there may be a caveat to that uh, rule, if you will, or that theory. And that is, you know, uh, if you have software that can serve as a differentiator, that could be 
uh, your competitive edge. And so I think most um, companies out there have not uh, adequately incorporated software or uh, maybe they have or they're trying to, but they can't see around all the bends, twists and turns. And um, and so my sense is with your Lightspeed software, you guys may have cracked the code on that. In order to be successful, I think uh, you have to understand where the weaknesses are in your um, in your model and then really make sure that you have a solution for that. And just because you have a certain type of business model doesn't mean that business model will succeed. Uh, sorry, will, will fail or succeed. Uh, also, it's all about execution. And so uh, I would say, you know, just have a laser focus on on execution and and performance and, and delivery. Thank you for that wisdom. I really do appreciate it. Every software is written from a lens of sales. And it's mind boggling to me. And so, and it's easier software to build, I know, but that's why we spent so much time and energy on building our own software, which has, it's built from an operational lens. But do appreciate so much you coming down and spending time. I know um, I got smarter on, you know, these two podcasts. I really do appreciate you taking the time and energy. And um, it's been great getting to know you. And I just, it's not just about this podcast. I've learned so much about our industry. And, uh, you know, I appreciate everything that you do because it's really, I think, helped freedom be better. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure today and um, look forward to our continued dialogue. Thank you, Philip, and thank you so much for coming in. And I echo Brett. Thank you for the reports and this and the analysis that you provide. We read them. We dig into them. It's shocking how accurate and how in tune you are with the industry um, at all levels. So, uh, yeah, one of one of the the great minds in the solar industry right now. So, um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you guys for listening, and we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>